Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast, where we discuss the future of psychedelic and alternative drug therapy with leading academics in the top of their field in all things scientific. As always, I'm your host, Ben Clayden, an undergraduate studying natural sciences specialising in neuroscience at the University of York, and I'm once again joined with Dr. Torsten Passy. Dr. Passy is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and as an expert in altered states of consciousness. Torsten has performed clinical and experimental studies with numerous psychoactive and psychedelic compounds, including LSD, psilocybin, laughing gas, MDMA, and ketamine, and has published multiple books on psychedelics and intactogens. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, welcome. In last month's episode, we discussed LSD derivatives, molecules with the same base structure as LSD with minor changes. We saw how the addition of a bromine to LSD completely removes any of its hallucinogenic effects, allowing us to develop a further structure function understanding of the pharmacology of LSD, whilst also looking at some specific case study molecules such as LSA and 1P-LSD. We then looked at a paper co-authored by Torsten, looking at the use of non-hallucinogenic 2-bromo-LSD as a treatment for cluster headaches, which showed very promising results as a preventative measure against the onset of cluster headaches in chronic patients. Today, we will look at ketamine, a dissociative anaesthetic, which has recently caught media attention for its antidepressive effects. Ketamine is also used frequently as a recreational drug. Taken together with ketamine's rise in popularity, it is paramount we have a good understanding of its underlying pharmacology, from its effects on a molecular level, all the way up to its effects on neural circuits and networks. We will discuss its rich history, effects and pharmacology, and finally discuss the two enantiomers of ketamine, comparing and contrasting them in relation to their possible therapeutic application. So let's get into it. Torsten, to begin, how was ketamine discovered? And are you able to give us a brief overview of its history? Yeah, so um, thanks for this very competent introduction. Um, so uh, the uh, discovery of ketamine, it wasn't really actually discovery kind of, because uh, they had, uh, they were looking out for new anesthetic drugs because most of them or virtually all of them have the disadvantage of uh, kind of bringing down your vital functions means you're not breathing anymore, for example, under the influence of a lot of anesthetics on the most of them. And so by chance through uh, experiments on monkeys, they came across a substance which kind of let their the vital functions of the monkeys intact while, while, they, while they could do surgery on them. That was really fascinating to them. However, they found that these guys, the mon monkeys, I mean, were kind of getting crazy a little bit after they, uh, they became awake again. And so they were, okay, they said, okay, these might be some reactions by the central nervous system and we have to try the material on humans. Then they tried it on humans and in fact, it was phencyclidine. Um, also known in the underground as angel dust. So that was the predecessor of ketamine, so to say. And then they tried this pretty interesting drug from a lot of viewpoints uh, in humans, and they found that the humans got even more psychotomimetic, psychosis mimicking effects. And so therefore it couldn't be used on humans on a regular basis. That was their conclusion. But they have already opened the path into a new realm of substances with PCP or fencyclidine or angel dust. And what they did is they developed it further in a way. So they modified the molecule in certain ways. And at last they came up with a substance, I think it was called MK601, which is ketamine in fact. And they tested it on humans. It had also some kind of nightmare inducing properties but by far not as harsh as with PCP. And therefore that was the drug they wanna develop and they developed it. Uh, it is interesting that the, it produces a very unusual kind of anesthesia, which is called dissociative anesthesia. And that means that your brain is somewhat disconnected from the input of the body. That means if I would hurt you, during an ketamine uh, anesthesia, you would not feel it. 
yeah, even if you may be still awake and see what I'm doing, but you don't feel the pain because you're dissociated from the pain, so to say, somewhat the input is to the brain is blocked, especially with higher doses, which are usually used in anesthesia. And uh, so uh, uh, um, ketamine made a real uh, uh, um, a steep career as an anesthetic drug. This is because of its, its properties. And again, it does not alter your vital functions. So you breathe, your heart is beating, everything is a little bit even stimulated instead of lower, lowered in its activity. And therefore you can use this drug even in the jungle, you know, if somebody is uh, uh, being injured by a downfalling tree or whatever, you can easily give him a shot in his muscle and he will be free of pain. And that is the reason why the third approach in the last five years of China and some other Asian countries, which have, we can talk later about that, which have a specific problem with ketamine addiction, quite large. They approached the World Health Organization. I'm in a, such a committee, therefore I know. They, they approached the World Health Organizations to put it in Schedule 1. And the, country, the other countries, like Germany and other European countries, which don't have a significant problem with ketamine addiction, they rejected that approach and said, if we would do that and put it in Schedule 1, it will be so much effort to get the drug uh, into the hand of physicians and use it in the jungle, for example, or in third world countries where they don't have surgery departments and so on, that 30,000 people would die per year if they couldn't use it in an easy way as it is right now. And so even three times, every other country than the Asians and the China, uh, China rejected that approach to put it in schedule one. That's just as a background. So, okay, it make a, made a big career, but uh, um, sooner or later, the anesthesiologists developed other drugs, mainly gases, which can be uh, manipulated even better than ketamine. And so, you know, ketamine got some rivals, so to say, from the other realm. And so therefore it's, it's use was somewhat, was somewhat reduced in the industrialized countries. However, uh, I conducted my ketamine studies in the late 1990s, which have been published um, uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, but uh, I'm mentioning this because at this point in time, there was, it was just an anesthesiological drug and also a little bit of a recreational drug, not that much at that point, but a year or two later, after I completed my studies, uh, they came up with the recognition that it might have antidepressant properties. And this was found uh, by surgeons, orthopedics, in fact, uh, which have seen kind of depressed patients before the surgery. Then they have given them ketamine for the surgery, the procedure. And then the pa patients uh, uh, became awake again and had not as much depression anymore and reported that. And so they came up with the idea, okay, let's test that as some kind of antidepressant drug. And it has the definite advantage that it works immediately. Even, uh, how should I say, an hour after the injection, you have gone through the through the inhibition, so to say, through all these psychological changes, which are not really personally significant. That's another point uh, with ketamine, but the antidepressant effect is there. However, the disadvantage is it has some side effects. It's an unagreeable state for most people, especially in the low dose range. And it is even a, a case of misconduct. If you as a physician would give that drug for anesthesiological purposes without an appropriate dose of a benzodiazepine, which puts you asleep. So it means if you traumatize as a physician, not giving benzodiazepines in parallel, you might traumatize that person seriously, you know, because of that kind of harsh state. And you have to uh, remind yourself that that means if an anesthesiologist is giving you the drug, he gives you five to 10 times higher of a dose. 
And so therefore, if you are getting awake at the point where very high doses in your system, you might really go into a nightmare and the K-hole and whatever. And so this could be a problem. And the side effects are even disagreeable in people which are not taking these high of a dose. And in the usual uh, psychopharmacological settings, so to say, where you are out for the antidepressant effect, the uh, the uh, doctors dose uh, the material like, um, let's say, 30 to 70 milligrams intramuscularly. And that means it's a very low dose from an anesthetological, anesthesiological point of view. Yeah, and uh, uh, when the psychiatrists follow ups, followed up the uh, surgeon's results, uh, they found that there is a serious um, um, and clinically significant antidepressant effect. The disadvantage besides the side effect is that it just holds usually the antidepressant, the duration of the antidepressant effect is usually one, two, three days. And then you have to repeat the infusion or injection. And that might be not the best thing to do. I mean, you had 120 infusions a year and stuff like that. However, some patients profit a little bit more, might be not the harshest cases, uh, uh, might profit more and might feel an antidepressant effect for a week or two or even three weeks or something. However, I have seen data sets from Oxford University plus, uh, from Oxford University clinics, psychiatric clinics, and they have given it for years to patients. And you can see that they applied 100 and 120 doses a year. And a lot of these guys, the patients became resistant against the antidepressants effect. So this might also prove in the long range that there is a limited way of applying this substance to depressive patients. But that the future has to show that. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. The chart, the fact that the antidepressant effects are recognized by chance um, yeah. is amazing. And I think we will discuss lots of the antidepressant nature later. But I suppose if we summarize that, what we can clearly see is that there's all sorts of effects that Kessman is producing. It's creating these disassociative effects, the hallucinogenic effects and the antidepressant effects. But I think we can perhaps say that the main effects are these disassociative and anesthetic effects. Mm -hmm. So, Torsten, how does Kessman work within the brain to produce these anesthetic and dissociative states? Yeah, this is still a mystery, to be honest. Uh, there have been a lot of hypotheses around. Uh, uh, this is also because it seems to be obvious that uh, ketamine works on the NMDA receptor uh, mainly, but there are other receptors involved. And if you know about brain uh, activities uh, of neurons, you might also know that there are third and uh, second and third messenger systems. It means even if the substance is kind of influencing the receptor, which is on the cell, let's say, you will see that the influence of the on this receptor might lead to another step in the chemistry or biochemical cycle of the cell. And then you might produce this so-called second messenger. And then there might be a third messenger involved and so on. And you have at least five types of receptors involved with, with ketamine and all of them do completely different things. And so I personally, because of that, I personally don't believe in these receptor uh, oriented explanatory models that much anymore. What we see in brain imaging study studies is that there, there are connectivity changes, it means how the brain areas work together that is changed in a certain way, but even that does not really give a consistent explanation for the antidepressant effects because the changes in functional connectivity how the brain areas work together, these, uh, these changes are not that much and not that extensive as, for example, with psilocybin, where this hypothesis about the changes in functional connectivity might, much more, might be much more plausible to explain the antidepressant effect. That's, uh, that suffers somewhat with ketamine. And so, therefore, I would still say it's a mystery. 
we don't really know. And there's also the fact that uh, as every kind of organic solvent, you could say, uh, or organic solution of uh, molecules, there is a right rotating enantiomere of ketamine and the left rotating in enantiomere of ketamine. And they are also doing different things. So what would you think to two molecules in one, so to say, in, in one solution, then you give that, it works on five receptor types, but in a different way. And you have all these second and third messenger systems. You have other influences on brain activity beyond these receptors. So it's a really complex matter. And to my knowledge, nobody had ever come up with a consistent explanation and not ignoring most, most of the facts. Yeah, I. it seems like there's, yeah, a whole load of different things going on. And we'll definitely discuss enantiomers yeah. a little bit more later. Um, but just to, I suppose, focus a little bit more on the antidepressant effects, because in the last two decades, ketamine has garnered interest as an emerging treatment for disorders such as depression, anxiety, PTSD, and more. And whilst you've just said the exact mechanisms are less clear, and we still don't really have a clue going of what's going on. Are you able to give us an understanding somehow of maybe how Kessman might be able to produce his antidepressive effects? Yeah, so uh, my personal opinion is that ketamine is not um, a, a psycholytic or psychedelic drug in that sense, because it does not leave you with a clear state of consciousness and a clear sensorium. It clouds your consciousness and so your sensorium it's somewhat suggested in the term dissociative, you know, you're kind of away from your senses, if you want, you're kind of away from your body, you're kind of away from your feelings, and stuff like that. Um, if you really look at uh, what it does with people, you will see, and if you interview them, and I've done that repeatedly, uh, you will see that the people feel very much immersed in this altered state of consciousness, but they are not reached, so to say, by the substance evoking feelings which are really realized in the brain and in the limbic system. They are kind of dissociated. It means you feel immersed in the emotion and you think, oh, it's a very emotional state, but it's not because if it's gone, it had no impact on your psyche, on your soul, so to say. And therefore, I personally don't believe that this is a really psycholytic or psychedelic drug and it can be used in these uh, 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 usual uh, settings as used with substance-assisted psychotherapy, be it MDMA, LSD, or psilocybin. It's a different drug. It clouds your consciousness. It clouds your senses. It reduces your emotional perception. It reduces your body perception. And it uh, very much alters your thinking in a not very good way. So it means you have grave thought disorders. And um, not, uh, not the least, you have grave memory disturbances. So, I mean, this is the opposite to LSD. You are not in a hyper alert state. You're, you don't have clear senses. You don't have clear consciousness. You don't have clear thoughts. You don't have a clear body perception. You don't have clear emotional perception. You don't have clear memory of the state. So it's quite a different substance. And it, uh, from the effect which you see with patients, and I've done that with Professor Hans Karl Leuner, the leading expert in hallucinogenesis did psychotherapy in Europe, and I've worked with them for three years, and I have seen treatments of a lot of patients, and I even uh, was asking Leuner, what are we doing here? Because these people with the ketamine, uh, we had other substances uh, at work, but uh, with the ketamine uh, patients, they didn't make any progress. So I was asking him, why, why, why are we using this material? And he said to me, yeah, there's no other option. So to say, so we had a masculine derivative to CD, which we worked with, uh, but the other substance was ketamine and he somewhat used a trick sometimes. So he gave the material after we gave the, we have given the patients a two CDs, that's a masculine derivative, short acting two to three hours. And we gave that substance. And after three hours, the people are still, because of this masculine uh, like substance uh, are still in a hyper alert state. And so if you give the ketamine, then their sensorium and consciousness is a little bit more clear than if you are going sober into such a trip. So therefore we might have even done something which could wake up 
some of ketamine's therapeutic properties in that uh, direction, but it didn't. So I have not seen any kind of success with this, sub with this substance. So then people show up and say, oh, Professor Passi, you might be not right because uh, Evgeny Krupitsky at St. Petersburg in Russia has done studies on heroin addicts and alcohol addicts and was very successful. Yes, and I was very close with Evgeny for a while. And so he told me, and I was saying, oh, should I do that too? And he said, no, this can be cannot be applied in other countries. And I said, why is that? He said, yeah, you know, the Russian soul, so to say, has a very specific format. And one of these uh, um, formatting features is that uh, they very much believe in outside control. It means... Uh, it doesn't mean Putin, <laughs> everybody would think that way. No, it means that, for example, um, we had an, a person doing a dissertation about coping behaviors in alcoholics in Germany compared to Belorussia. And the main difference was that the Russians, they were always thinking alcoholism came from outside in their brain and the surgeon or the physician has to extract it. It was more like an entity, a demon, and, and a kind of part of the brain or something, which you could put out by surgery. So they very much believe that they have no power to overcome their addiction. And they are very much hoping for a physician who is doing hypnosis to them or some other ritual so that they can be helped out of it. And therefore, Evgeny put them on his anesthesia table with a very impressive technical environment on the anesthesiology department, he suggested a lot to them, he gave them very high doses, and they he also did some stuff when they were in this altered state, for example, putting a bottle of whiskey in front of their nose to give them an aversive uh, conditioning and stuff like that. So this is the Russian soul, to put it in simple words, is very much suggestible and can be helped much more by outside maneuvers, because the belief system is that way, than in other industrialized Western countries, like, uh, for example, Europe in general, and also the US, where the Protestant approach, so you are the guilty one because of the addiction. You have to go out of there. Nobody else can do that for you, and stuff like that. You know, we are very much in that direction. And therefore, I would be a little bit skeptical to transfer the the good results which he had with heroin addicts and alcoholics to the US, you know, for this reason. And uh, so uh, as to, um, to my knowledge, uh, there has been no other proof of uh, the use of ketamine in an efficient way uh, uh, to treat mental disorders other than depression. Uh, I know that there's one study uh, out there which has tried to use it with in the context of the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and the results were not that bad but we have to be skeptical because you know the suggestion effect is very large of such an intervention in general it's it's not about ptsd and whatever it's in general it's it's a harsh intervention the people really feel strange and stuff so it has a lot of suggestion effect you know, oh, I got an effective drug because it felt that way, kind of. And therefore, I would be even a little bit skeptical about these results if they are really real, if it comes to the real population outside of outside of such a study context and outside of the suggestion of the physician that that might be helpful. If you would really try that on real population in a double-blind fashion, the results will be much lower, I guess. However, it seems to have certain properties which might be also helpful with other mental disorders. I don't want to exclude that, but I don't think that there is appropriate proof up to now. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we talk a lot about how important the placebo effect and the importance of having a good placebo in psychedelic or hallucinogenic studies are. So I think it's a really valid point. Just bringing it back, I think it's really interesting that you talked about the cultural differences and how something might be effective in Russia versus not in the Western world. And I wanted to just ask you a question, bringing it back to what you said about China and the addiction uh, of ketamine in China. I was wondering if you might be able to speculate why we see such a high rate of addiction there and not in other countries. 
Yeah, I've thought about this and I came also to some conclusions about it. Uh, for example, if you look back in the history, you will see the so-called opium wars. So your country, the UK, were fighting uh, the opium wars. So usually you would think, okay, the Englishmen tried to suppress the trade of opium. The opposite is the case. They fought the war to they fought the war against China because China was fighting for the prohibition of opium. And the Englishmen want to deal opium to the Chinese people. So they want to sell it. So they, the, the opium wars were about that they could the Englishmen could continue to sell it to the Chinese. That was the war about. And so it, but it also, the, the Chinese government was really fighting opium. Why was that? Because, you know, this is my speculation, but I've studied it somewhat. And uh, it came to, uh, to my mind that um, the general cultural format is a so-called facade culture. Facade culture means you are playing social games mainly, and you try to appear in a certain way as a very conform and blah, blah, blah person in this mass uh, psychological spectrum, what they have there. And, and therefore, uh, the people have a, having a hard time to stay away from their facade. And that means yeah, there's just one way, because at a later point in their life, they might be not able to differentiate between their authentic self, so to say, and their facade. So they become the facade, so to say. And that means if they want to stay out of the social environment, it means they have to dissociate from the environment. And that can be done very good by opium. You know, it makes you passive, it makes you far out, it makes you dreaming, it makes you, you know, you don't care about the world anymore and so on. You don't care about the facade anymore and so on. So you had these opium caves, as they were called, you know, where people kind of withdraw from society, you know, consciously. And you can see the kind of the same effect with ketamine. Nobody want to dissociate from the social environment as much in our country. Somewhat, yes you know, by being in a pub and blah, it's also a social environment anyway. But, you know, so it means there is a tendency because of their general mentality of the population, uh, which produces an affinity for a dissociating drug. And this is the reason I think why they have such a big problem uh, there. And uh, ketamine, by the way, has also been called repeatedly in the drug scene, psychedelic heroin, you know, because it does not just produce a dissociation from the environment and from the social environment. It also produces as a, a state of kind of feeling safe and secure kind of in that ketamine induced state. So it's not a bad state to be in there. And that might be the reason why people dissociate more in these Asian countries because of their facade culture and that they, if they want to stay out, they really radically have to stay out, kind of. Now, that is, I think, the background. Otherwise, it's hard to explain why they have, an, you could say, a hundred times higher affinity and addiction rate with ketamine than we do. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really, really interesting and very plausible hypothesis, I think. Yeah. Um, and so we've been talking about ketamine as a single molecule, whereas in reality, like you said earlier, there are two distinct forms of ketamine known as R-ketamine and S-ketamine, which are enantiomers. Enantiomers are a type of isomer, meaning that they share the same connectivity and contain the same number of each atom bonded in the same order. However, are mirror images of each other, much like your hands. R and S ketamine have quite distinct properties, which may lead to different clinical applications for each. Um, and in a clinical setting, ketamine can be administered as a single enantiomer or as a combination of both, which is known as a racemic mixture. We're now going to take a look at a paper co-authored by Torsten, Comparative Effects of S ketamine and Racemic RS ketamine on Psychopathology, State of Consciousness and Neurocognitive Performance in Healthy Volunteers, which came out recently in 2021. 
This study was a randomized control study comparing the effects of S-ketamine and racemic R-S-ketamine to a placebo relating to psychopathology, states of consciousness and neurocognitive performance. The study had three groups with 10 healthy male participants in each, with one group given S-ketamine, the other given R-S-ketamine and the final group given a placebo. Before we discuss the results and applications of this study, is there any reason you chose not to include another group which would receive just R-ketamine? Yeah, that is an interesting question. So uh, we did not do that because Park Davis at the time, now Pfizer, where was not able to deliver the R enantiomer. We had the uh, Professor Adams, who is also on the paper. I took the lead in the study, and uh, but he was the major guy in, with ketamine in Germany in, in anesthesia, and so we even instructed him to to make Park Davis give up give us the R enantiomer, but they were not able to deliver it. They they told us. In some cases of molecules, you can just synthesize the sinister rotating one, for example. So that might be also true. Who knows? Um, that was the reason. But let me tell you a little bit of the background story about that study. So that study was conducted by us in the early 2000s, in fact, even if it appeared kind of 15 years later, for a certain reason. So what? how do we came about that study? So we were occasional recreational users of ketamine. And then S-ketamine came out. And the professor I mentioned was already a kind of accustomed to us. So I asked him, could you give us some bit of S-ketamine so that we can give it a try and stuff? And he was, he was not uh, inhibited in doing so because we were physicians, educated, blah, blah. So we know what to do. And we tried it and we found that we were kind of shocked because it it felt like the industry has stolen the psychedelic properties of ketamine by putting the R enantiomer out of the mixture. So the anesthetic effect is still there, but the rolling kind of inhibition, what you feel with ketamine, was gone. And so we were kind of shocked. So we thought, okay, it means also that the state which you might experience when you wake up from a narcosis might be more disagreeable with S-ketamine than with a racemic mixture. So we came up with the idea, okay, let's do a study about that and compare these two, even if the differences are kind of not easy to grasp. So what we did is we we I showed up at this Professor Adams, uh, uh, Professor Adams' uh, office, talked to him, and he was immediately calling up Park Davis and arranging for some money for the study. You know, and then we started the study, and we were conducting the study. Um, uh, fortunately enough, we we had uh, designed also our own scale. One of the scales was our own because we were looking out for specific differences which might not show up in these standardized questionnaires. And at last we found uh, that the racemic mixture, so including R and S versions of ketamine together in a liquid, was given in an equivalent dose to uh, compared to S-ketamine. And it looks like the racemic mixture was having less side effects and less disagreeable side effects than the S-enantiomer alone. But the industry has designed the S-enantiomer or produced it because they could prolong the patent that way. Because the racemic mixture was out of patent in the year 2000. So they came up in the year 2000 with the S-ketamine and they want to promote that. So what we did, we did a first class study, a very methodologically sound study. We sent it in to anesthesiology, a major anesthesia journal. So they came back to us and said, we didn't send it out for review because your publication does not contain any scientific progress. So isn't it the scientific progress to prove that an old substance is not worse than a new substance. But you know, these editorial committees, if you look at these members, you will see that everybody has between 20 and 40 conflicts of interest. 
So there's no question. So we send it, it to another journal, anesthesia and analgesia. They came back with the same kind of comment. They didn't send it out for review. They, they send it as a letter back or a mail back say, saying, this is a first class study, but they don't want to publish it for whatever reason. So we waited for 13 years <laughs> when, when the rise of popularity of ketamine, especially in respect to the different enantiomers and their antidepressants properties and stuff, we, we had a quite easy time to get it published. <laughs> no. you know. But I think the debate is over, meanwhile, because the anesthesiologists, by practical experience, have realized that racemic ketamine is not worse than S-ketamine. And the other thing is that you, uh, if you use S-ketamine, you have to pay five times the money than with a racemic mixture, which is a generic out of patent. And if you look at the antidepressant application right now, for example, um, in Germany, you have... 30 cents, 30 euro cents for one dose of racemic ketamine compared to 300 euros. So a thousand times more for the nasal spray for one dose. It costs 300 euros. I mean, a thousand times more. Nobody can justify that. What did the UK do? Interestingly enough, you have these National Institute for Clinical Ex Excellence, which is evaluating new treatments and stuff, they recommended to not market it and used two arguments for that. First off, much too expensive, obviously true. And second, no comparison study to psychotherapy, which is in fact the first line treatment for depression. You know, and if you will use a substance, 300 pounds a dose for every third day for a year, you, you can imagine the costs, you know. But if you would use psychotherapy, you would not just minimize some symptoms temporarily. You might heal the person so that you don't have to use any medication anymore. That's not really good for the pharmaceutical industry, but might be good for the patient, right? But the, you have to remind or you have to, to realize that billions of pounds are behind the pharmaceutical industry. How many pounds are behind the psychotherapy industry, so to say? Not a cent. No company, nobody eager to sell anything, you know? So it's a human interaction healing procedure, which just needs two humans and one human educated specifically. You know, that's it. You know, I, I think it's completely appropriate with what your country has done in that respect. Too expensive, no comparison studies. And so they did not allow for marketing of this very expensive preparation. But a physician can still use it, even as an antidepressant drug, off-label by using the racemic mixture for 30 cents. I mean, that's just a hell of a backstory. The sheer price, the fact that it's 1,000 times yeah. more expensive is amazing. And yeah. we're about to get into the findings of the study. And I think the findings would even add to the absurdity of this situation. So, Torsten, can you tell us what were the actual findings of this study? Yeah, so what we found is that the uh, neurocognitive performance was a little bit worse with a racemic mixture but clinically insignificant, I would say, but in the computer testing, there was a little bit of a difference, not significant, but the numerical values were all lower for the racemic mixture. But if it comes to psychological or psychopharmacological side effects, the profile of the esketamine is much worse than with the racemic mixture. So the people felt better with the racemic mixture. And you could ask, why is that? So our impression from the outside, as well as from our own uh, um, uh, uh, preceding uh, auto experiments, was the impression that if you are under the influence of esketamine, you are in a kind of the same state like with the racemic mixture, but the state is static. There's no flow. There's no rolling of the experience, so to say. There's no groove in it. No. And that means you can control the state a little bit better with esketamine because your feelings are not going and, and so on. But it is a much more disagreeable state. 
And so therefore, from a scientific and, and pharmacological point of view, you could say it seems that the R enantiomer has some protective effects against the side effects coming from the S enantiomer. So it might be more appropriate to use a racemic mix mixture instead of the S-ketamine alone. However, these differences were all in one direction, but they were mostly not significant from a scientific point of view. So one could argue if we would have used 30 subjects per group, we would have found a significant difference if you look at these values. But our study has not proven a significant difference. It has proven a difference and it always goes in the same direction to have a better compatibility compatibility to the uh, psyche of humans, so to say, the racemic mixture, but it has not been proven. But if you as a physician would argue and say, okay, from an ethical point of view, it's better that the people don't experience so much unagreeable psychological side effects, then you might change your way and, and say, oh, okay, I use a, a racemic mixture even off-label, and you can easily justify that because what has been proven is that there is no difference, also not in favor of the esketamine, right? That what would have been expected by the proponents of that uh, uh, patented molecule, right? I mean, yeah, it just has such <laughs> bizarre implications, right? Particularly when we think about the current climate where there's a lot of emphasis on esketamine and not yeah. a lot on racemic, yeah. whereas yeah. This, is, your... this, is, this is simply done by ignorance, so to say. And let me just give you an analogy or metaphor which I've created for making uh, up the difference of these two states. So uh, if you are going for a bath into a lake, you are in the lake, let's say, up to the shoulders, right? So you are, your all the skin is in the water. So if you go in a river, up to the shoulders, everywhere water, but it's a completely different dynamic. If it's really a river which really flows, you are going with the flow, you're, you're in there, it makes fun and stuff like that. That's the difference. With the esketamine, you're getting stuck somewhere you have the same psychopathological symptoms so to say but you're stuck there no groove no move no flow you know that's the difference and right now because the anesthesiologists they sometimes treat um, multi-morbid patients which have a lot of medications on board already for all their diseases heart and liver and whatever and that means if you are able as an anesthesiologist to use a substance in the lowest possible amount that might be better for these multi-morbid patients means if you could do induce an anesthesia with the esketamine alone, you know, you would need just half of the material. So the body load is much lower. Right, and so it, the interferences or potential interactions with other substances are reduced, and because, as I've already mentioned, anesthesiologists have the obligation to give ketamine just together with high doses of benzodiazepines so that you fall asleep. That means the psychological response does not make such much of a difference, right? And but if it comes to antidepressant treatments it makes a difference. And right now we have been proven to be right by others because it has been found, meanwhile, during the next last few years that the R enantiomer, so to say R-ketamine, is a much more potent antidepressant drug than the S-ketamine. And there, there are also right now things ongoing which try to patent R-ketamine for antidepressant use. Thank you very much, Torsten. It sounds really interesting. And I think we'll jump straight off of that and say, can you yeah. see a path towards ketamine becoming a readily used antidepressant or perhaps part of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy as treatment for depression or anxiety? Yeah, uh, it is a complex question, in fact, even if it sounds simple. So I think there is a place for a rapid-acting uh, antidepressant drug for sure, especially on psychiatric wards where the people are really severely uh, ill by depressions. 
Um, on the other side, yeah, if you have repeat uh, have to repeat that all the time, even for years, that does not really make sense. So we have to look really at the clinical landscape, so to say, how it can be handled and how different groups of patients, also with maybe medium or low kind of uh, uh, milder kind of depression, might profit from these treatments. I have no idea up to now, and even if you look at the newest reviews, you also get not really idea because the such a straightforward pharmacological intervention is not the first line treatment. It means all the mild form of depression or medium form of depression uh, have to be treated by psychotherapy. And so therefore we don't know as much results with these uh, populations which have a lower degree of depression, so to say. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, uh, yeah, ketamine assisted psychotherapy, yeah, to put it simple, I don't believe in it because I've practiced it. <laughs> and uh, therefore, but what there might be a faulty thinking out of my statement, which is, oh, it can't be used in a psychotherapeutic fashion. Yeah, that's right. I think so. But if you give a patient ketamine as an antidepressant drug, so to say for it, its biological and pharmacological properties, you still have to provide an appropriate setting. And what I've seen is that they had cabins, one beside the others, just separated by curtains, you know, and a, a, meter, a, a meter away from you, somebody is electroshocked repeatedly, you know, and you're just, just with the curtain in between, you are lying there on a ketamine trip in an anesthesiology department with a lot of strange noises and stuff like that. So if you are using ketamine, provide an appropriate setting, please. The quietness is one requirement. Protectedness is another requirement. A safe and good therapeutic or physician-patient relationship is also very important. And also music and instructions should be given so that the people can go easily through that stage and might even enjoy it somewhat. That can be done in in uh, in, uh, op uh, in contrary to that what I've seen in these anesthesiology departments. That was really terrible in a way. So just uh, a uh, short anecdote about that. So when I was in Atlanta, in a, in Atlanta in the U.S., in a so-called neuromodulatory unit, you know, it was in fact an, a former anesthesiology department, which every piece of furniture was more ugly than the other. It was really terrible, you know, and I said to my colleagues, it can't be true that people are giving this kind of, yeah, mind-altering drug in this kind of setting here. You know what they said? They said, oh, look here, because what they did is they put it on the ceiling. They have done with, with some markers, they have put it a psychedelic painting there. And they said to me, yeah, the people don't have to look around in this ugly environment. They could look at the ceiling and see this nice picture, you know. Some were true, but the general environment was terrible, you know. And if you could uh, provide an environment with um, appropriate furniture, like, like a living room, stuff like that, you know, and a person in civil clothes, not in these white coat stuff like that. And also what has to be also definitely avoided is to give it intravenously. Uh, there are differences in respect to pharmacokinetics as it is called. Uh, if you give somebody an intravenous injection, they usually use a so-called bolus so that the system is filled up somewhat. So you are going on a trip quite immediately which is not really appropriate. It's better to go slow, you know. And if you give a person an intramuscular shot, you don't need any in instruments, perfusors, and all that kind of infusion technique stuff. You don't need that. You just give a dose, let's say, of 40 or 50 milligrams of ketamine in the, in the muscle at certain places of the body, which are allowed for. And then the people go slowly into the state they have a peak and then they go slowly out of the state. Much better, much more simple, much better. But these anesthesiologists 
always think it's their paradigm born in, so to say, and they go, oh, if you give it intravenously, you can immediately stop it. You can immediately go on and stuff like that. From a technical point of view, in general, I would say yes, but in the case of ketamine for antidepressant purposes, completely untrue. It's a stupid way of uh, applying it, even. And brilliant insights. And, and the story in Atlanta is, is amazing, right? I think what's quite interesting is it almost brings back to the point we discussed right at the start, which is what is ketamine? Is it, should it be classed as a uh, disassociative and an anesthetic and treated like that? Or should we treat it like a psychedelic and really emphasize the set and setting and these importance? And I'm assuming that probably your opinion is a combination of both. And we need to take elements from both the anesthetic and the psychedelic elements to really maximize the efficacy of the substance. Yeah, I would agree with that. But we have to be careful not to confuse these things. And I've yesterday I've uh, I've read an account of uh, Alexander Shulgin, the prominent psychedelic chemist, where he outlines in a very short uh, unknown paper, he outlines the characteristics of a real psychedelic. And he uses ketamine and atropine as the counter examples, so to say, for being not a psychedelic, because it dissociates you from the body, it dissociates you from yourself and stuff like that. And it's exactly the opposite with the psychedelics. But you are right with your thoughts, I think, because we don't don't use ketamine just as a biological agent working on the biology of the brain because it opens you somewhat to uh, to some uh, strange inner experiences which have to be modulated and appropriately accompanied during the trip. You know, you can't put somebody in an electroshock department and and put him on in there and then go on, you know, without any kind of appropriate music and calmness and all that. So don't ignore the psychedelic side of that molecule, even if it is minimal and not really therapeutically useful in that respect. I think that's a really, really brilliant explanation, Torsten. Thank you very much. Lovely. I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening to the end of the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast with me, Ben Clayden, and our wonderful guest, Dr. Torsten Passi. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to rate us on your preferred streaming platform, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and your preferred streaming platform for new episodes every month. Thanks and take care.